comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. And I'm your host, Liv, she who loves a Greek tragedy, even when it's not written by Euripides. Though, obviously, Euripides is still the best. Just don't tell Aristotle I said so. Today we are back with part two of Sophocles' most famous play, I mean, arguably the most famous play from all of Greek tragedy, and certainly the one that is most often deemed to be the, the height of tragedy, the perfect example of what tragedy should be. Oedipus Tyrannos, Oedipus Rex, Oedipus the King, so many names for the same thing. It's Rex that's become most well-known, most used in translations, even though it's Latin. It's also just, like, not quite right, and that's important. Rex is the word for king, but the ancient Greek had two distinct words for king, and the distinction is very, very relevant here in Oedipus, and will only get more relevant as we go on. Basileus is the word for a king that took the throne through ancestry, therefore a kind of divine rule. He was born into it. Tyrannos, meanwhile, is a king who seized power, took it, and made it his own. It's where the word tyranny and tyrant will eventually come from, but here, now, when this myth would be imagined to have taken place, it wasn't a bad thing. It was just a distinction. And words revolving around tyranny are often used in this play with the same distinction. They're referring to the rule of someone like Oedipus, who took the throne of Thebes after his defeat of the Sphinx because their earlier ruler, Laius, was missing and assumed dead. And speaking of Laius, where we last left off in the city of Thebes, there was a plague. The city was sick and dying, and they are seeking answers, a solution, a way to save them all. It came in the form of a prophecy by the Oracle of Delphi, brought to the king, the Tyrannos, Oedipus, by his brother-in-law and once-trusted advisor, Creon. The Oracle said that the city must purge itself of the murderer of their earlier ruler, of Laius, That murderer, though no one knew who he was, no one witnessed the event and could speak of it. The murderer was in the city, so the oracle says. And so Oedipus called upon the one man in Thebes who should have the answers, the blind prophet Tiresias. But Tiresias didn't tell Oedipus anything he wanted to hear. And when we last left these two, they were fighting back and forth, trading insults and barbs and accusations, because Tiresias says that the problem the entire time has been Oedipus. It's Oedipus who murdered Laius, he says. Oedipus is the reason for the plague on the city of Thebes, on Oedipus's own city. But my gods, is Oedipus unwilling to entertain this accusation? And (laughs) fine, no one wants to be accused of murder, but it's his unwillingness to ask questions, to probe, maybe, like, why is it that Tiresias is saying such things? Why is it that he thinks that Oedipus is the one who killed Laius? That should give us some pause.
episode 211. That feeling when maybe you did actually do the thing you're accused of? Whoops. Oedipus Tyrannos, part two. Oedipus and Tiresias have been fighting, arguing constantly for far too long. Oedipus has just decided that Tiresias accusing him of being the one of causing the plague on the city, of being the one who murdered Laius, Thebes' former leader, he's decided that this means that Tiresias and Creon are working against him, trying to overthrow him. He entertains no other theories, he doesn't ask questions, doesn't probe how or why it would be that he killed Laius, how Tiresias could say this, what more does he know? He, he asks no questions, he just devolves into fury and rage and denial. And finally, Tiresias bites back. He begins his speech telling Oedipus off with a very pointed line, quote, Though you are the tyrant here, others still have the right to answer you at equal length. You are the tyrant here. Now, in the modern world, and certainly in English, we hear that as a fairly simple claim. Oedipus is acting tyrannical. He's being a tyrant. Except there's actually so, so, so much more to it in the ancient Greek, like I briefly mentioned up at the top. Because etymology is fun, and I want to talk about it more. So, I said at the top of the episode, but let's really look into what this means. Tyrannos. Tyrannos means king in this context. It has yet to take on the modern word of tyrant. It's getting close in Athens at this time, but not when this myth is supposed to have taken place. It means this very specific type of king, a king that seized power, rather than one who was born into it. That's why the use of the Latin rex in so many versions and translations just loses so much of this additional context. Because in this case, Oedipus is not just any king. He's not a Basileus, one born into power. He is a Tyrannos, one who seized it. Of course, I mean, no spoilies, but I mean... There's a bit more to it than that, but we will get there. The point is that Tiresias is not just calling Oedipus a tyrant. He's not saying that for the sake of it. He's commenting on Oedipus as a leader, and he's using it as an insult here, but it's not inherently an insult. There is a negative connotation, and certainly in the time that Sophocles was writing, like I was saying, like that, that was more of an explicit negative connotation. Athens had had a whole time with Tyrannos kings in the past, but in this very ancient mythical Thebes, he's just this type of king who's also, well, behaving like the English word tyrant. Oedipus earlier had gone so far as to mock Tiresias for being blind, and Tiresias sets him straight on that now. He might be blind, he says, but it's Oedipus who can't see what's in front of him. Quote, I say you see all right, but not the evil you're in, or where you live, or whom you live with. Whom he lives with, indeed. Tiresias goes on, asking Oedipus if he even really knows his origins, where he comes from. Does he know that he is loathsome to his family? Tiresias asks with a sneer. Quote, your mother and father's double curse will hound you from this land one day in terror. Sight it now, but seeing darkness then. Tiresias does love to be cryptic in his fury. He tells Oedipus that he doesn't know now, but when he understands everything, he will see it all for what it was. Quote, 
That wedding in the palace, that port, no port at all, into which you sailed so smoothly. He tells Oedipus that he'll see the evils in himself, how they relate even to his own children. He finishes by telling him that no mortal will ever be ruined, quite like Oedipus will be. Oof. Oedipus, though, might as well not even be listening. He doesn't even reply to Tiresias directly. He just turns to the chorus and is like, do I really have to listen to this guy? And he tries to tell Tiresias to just leave and not come back. But Tiresias isn't letting it go that easily. You asked me to come here, he reminds Oedipus. And then it it turns. Oedipus insults Tiresias' abilities, saying he wouldn't have invited him here if he knew he'd just spout such drivel. To which Tiresias very pointedly says, Your parents certainly thought I made sense. And this is what Oedipus needed to hear. Quote, what parents? Wait, who brought me forth? Oh, are we certain about our parentage, Oedipus? (laughs) Intrigue. (laughs) But Tiresias is still Tiresias, so so it's not that easy. He goes back to cryptic responses that only ever serve to make Oedipus more angry. Aren't you supposed to be good with riddles? Tiresias asks him with a bite. Oedipus was, after all, the one who finally solved the Sphinx's riddle. In the end, Tiresias won't answer any more of Oedipus's questions. He's ready to leave now, after one more little speech, one more little bit of knowledge for the road. Quote, This man, the one you've long been looking for, with threats and proclamations about the death of Laius, he's here, a guest from abroad, so they say, but soon to emerge a native Theban, though he'll take no pleasure in that discovery. Tiresias goes on to tell Oedipus that this man, the man whose truth will be revealed, will then go on to wander, blind, a beggar, with nowhere to go, making his way to a foreign land, with only his walking stick to guide him. And, quote, he'll be found to be both brother and father to his children, son and husband to his mother, breeding where his father bred, having spilled his father's blood. He'll be found to be both brother and father to his children, son and husband to his mother, breeding where his father bred, having spilled his father's blood. Not what you want to hear from a prophet, even one you're not likely to believe. Both men leave the stage at this point, or we think they do, and the chorus sings. The chorus sings of this man, this mystery man whose fate has been revealed. What a horrible fate it is. Seems like a fine time for him to run before Zeus's child is after him, before those furies are after him for his crimes. They sing of how this man needs to be hunted down. Quote, For under the wild wood, in caves, among rocks he roams, like the bull bereft of his herd, hampered, with hampered foot trying to outrun the prophecies from Earth's center that hover around him, ever on target, ever alive. 
Then they turn to singing of Oedipus, the accusations against him. But no, they can't see it. They can't fathom that it could be true. To them, he is the man who saved them from the Sphinx, who, who saved the whole city from the creature's grasp. Quote, so in my thoughts, he could not be guilty of a crime. And with their song sung, Creon joins the stage. He's there to talk about Oedipus's accusations against him. He's heard the claims. He's not only hurt by hearing such things said against him and without any reason on Oedipus's part, but he can't go on like that. Like treason is a crime one can't come back from. The chorus kind of comforts Creon, if only by saying that though Oedipus did say this about him, it was almost certainly said out of anger more than judgment. Before long, Oedipus returns, though, and Creon and the chorus only get a brief moment to speculate on where his head is at when he made the claims, because he's there, in front of Creon, and he's certainly making the claim clearly now. He berates Creon for not only making these designs to overthrow Oedipus, but standing before him after doing it. Quote, isn't it foolish, this attempt of yours, to seek a tyranny without wealth and friends? For that, you need popular support and money. There's that word again, tyranny. Oedipus is now accusing Creon of seeking tyranny, and he's doing it unironically, as though Creon's tyranny would be somehow different from Oedipus's, as though one is more deserving of this status than the other. Oedipus is absolutely blinded by his anger now. He's unable to see anything critically, to think rationally about what he's doing or saying. He's just so consumed by not only being accused of being the reason Thebes is plagued, but one can assume, like, by his own thoughts about what that might mean. He thinks he has the support of the people and that Creon doesn't, but what evidence does he actually have for that? Creon stops Oedipus. He wants to be heard, wants to defend himself at the very least. They speak quickly, back and forth, with Creon repeatedly asking to be heard and Oedipus being far too stubborn to listen. He won't actually let Creon defend himself, he's just decided what's going on. But he does eventually begin to ask questions about Laius and his disappearance. When was he last seen? He asks Creon. Years ago, he's told. And was Tiresias around then? Oedipus presses. He was, Creon confirms, and he was just as wise and well-respected then as he is now. Did he speak of me then? Oedipus asks. But no, Creon says, not, not that he knows of. And why didn't you all try to find Laius's killer? We did, obviously, Creon tells him, but we couldn't find anything. We couldn't learn anything. Oedipus now decides that the blame resides with Creon because if he'd never suggested that they bring Tiresias in for answers, Tiresias would have never been able to accuse Oedipus in the first place. I didn't hear him say it, Creon counters, but still, I've got questions for you, and I've got as much right to ask them as you do me. Fine, Oedipus agrees. He'll listen to Creon. You're married to my sister, Creon begins. A statement more than a question. They both know that Oedipus is indeed married to Jocasta, Creon's sister. And you rule this land, Creon adds, quote, hand in hand with her. Which I just quite enjoy. It's kind of an admission of the power and control that Jocasta actually holds. Rare for a woman, a queen, but then... She was queen before Oedipus was king. And I'm your third, is that right? Creon asks. Of course, Oedipus says, and that's why what you've done is so bad. Creon is ready to defend himself, though. Look at it this way, he tells Oedipus. Why would I want to seize power from you by force and, and rule while living in fear when I could remain as I am, 
third to you, holding more than enough power, but without any of the, the dirty work, without the living in fear. He's quite comfortable with his place as it is, he tells Oedipus. He has no desire for more power, let alone to take it by force. If you still don't trust me, he goes on, go and check what the oracle said for yourself. Like, ensure that it was what I told you. And if you find that I have conspired with Tiresias, just kill me. Don't worry about a vote. Just do it. Just don't accuse me without merit. Don't just guess that I've done this. Don't just assume me evil. Quote, but you'll know all of this for sure in time. For time alone reveals the man who's just, while you can know a bad one in a day. And for all Creon seems to present a rational and reasoned point, defends himself well and simply asks for the truth to come out before Oedipus makes any rash decisions, Oedipus just, he's not here for it. He's made up his mind, he's not thinking clearly, he's only concerned with the threats made against him, and he seems to barely listen to a thing that Creon has said. No, he's ready not only to exile Creon, but... He wants him dead, just like that. Finally, the chorus leader has to break them up. He tells them, enough. There's Jocasta coming from the palace. She'll help to put an end to this. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV True Crime Podcast, to live and die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics, in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Jocasta speaks to her husband and her brother, quote, Why this senseless storm of words? Is this the time to stir up private ills when the country is sick? Aren't you ashamed? Yeah, the reasonable and rational woman is here. Thank fuck. She tells Oedipus to go inside, then tells her brother to go home too. Quote, don't make so much out of nothing. But the men don't listen. Creon tells her that her husband is trying to pass judgment that would cause his execution. Oedipus complains that Creon's plotting against him. I like to imagine they sound like whiny children here, trying to get mommy to believe them over the other. Is that, is that a pun? No, no, no pun intended? <laughs> Oedipus, damn it. Jocasta basically says, listen to my brother, he's sworn an oath to you, and you should believe him when he tells you that he's innocent. From here, the chorus and Oedipus begin to sing together. They're they're telling him to be persuaded by these words, that he doesn't have proof of his claims against Creon, that he's a friend bound by an oath, and he isn't deserving of a punishment without evidence of his guilt. But Oedipus only sees this as confirmation of his, of his own guilt, that, that if if it isn't Creon who's guilty, then it's Oedipus, and that by asking this of him, the chorus is condemning him to a fate of death or exile. And they're basically like, dude, that is not what we're saying. <laughs> Except they're the chorus in a Sophocles play, so they're eloquent as fuck when they say it. The point remains. Still, in the end, Oedipus decides to listen to the chorus and to spare Creon's life, even if he's still convinced that it might mean the end of his own. 
Creon leaves bitterly, well aware that it's only the words of the chorus of these Theban elders that have saved his life, and that Oedipus didn't come to this conclusion on his own, though he should have. With Creon gone, the chorus tries to tell Jocasta to bring Oedipus inside, too, to have him, have him calm down. But she's having none of that. She will not take him anywhere. She won't leave herself until someone tells her what the fuck is going on. Between the chorus and Oedipus, they try seriously hard to avoid telling Jocasta anything. Thankfully, she gives zero fucks and is a strong woman and simply will not have that. Even when they begin to talk about the things as if she isn't there, as if her view on the matter, her knowledge of it happening at all, doesn't matter at all. But she she pushes and pushes. And finally, Oedipus tells her, quote, he says that I'm the one who murdered Laius. Which, I mean, Oedipus, that isn't really true. Like, that's what Tiresias said. Creon just kind of helped you bring him there. Eventually, he does concede that, fine, Creon didn't say it. He had a prophet do his dirty work. To which Jocasta seems relieved. Oh, she says, then you can consider yourself innocent. Quote, no mortal has any share in arts of prophecy. And, she continues, She's got proof of exactly this. How little prophecies really matter. So then she launches into a story about Laius, her former husband, the former leader of Thebes. She tells Oedipus that Laius was once told of a prophecy that, quote, his fate was to be killed by his own child, the son that would be born to him and me. This is proof that prophecies don't mean much. She tells Oedipus, because the rumors say that Laius was killed by bandits, where three roads meet, and the child that we had together, he immediately left out on the mountainside with the little kid's feet pinned together. So, you know, wasn't them. She adds, quote, And so Apollo didn't cause the child to be his father's killer, or made Laius meet the fate he feared at the child's hand. <laughs> Wait, Oedipus replies, calling Jocasta very explicitly his wife. My mind wandered when you were speaking just then. Did you say that Laius was murdered where three roads meet? Yeah, of course, Jocasta replies. That's a detail about his death that's always been well known. Where is this place? Oedipus asks very carefully. She tells him, quote, The land's called Phocis, and the, the road splits there. One branch to Delphi, the other to Daulis. Oedipus swallows. Maybe blinks. He takes it in. Then how long ago did this happen? He asks. Jocasta replies, quote, The message reached the city just before you emerged as the ruler of this land. Oedipus doesn't reply to her now, but to Zeus, quote, oh, Zeus, what have you planned to do with me? What's wrong? His wife asks. Oedipus breathes out heavy, quote, don't ask me yet, but tell me about Laius. What did he look like? How old was he? And so Jocasta, Oedipus's wife, widow of the former king Laius, tells him. She describes her former husband. Oedipus replies by crying out in anguish, quote, Oi moy, it seems I didn't know I cast myself under a deadly curse just now. Jocasta 
is worried now. <laughs> Oedipus is not behaving as she would expect him to. He, he's truly distraught, and, and she can't sort out why that would be. I mean, she, she just basically even proof that prophecies don't matter. But he doesn't tell her yet what's wrong. He, he, he presses her about the details. She tells him who Lias was traveling with, how many men were with him at the time. She, she tells him about the wagon Lias rode in. She tells him that an enslaved man was the only one to make it back. And it was he who told her the story, this sole survivor. Is this survivor still in Thebes? Oedipus asks. No, she tells him, quote, The moment he returned and saw that you were on the throne and Laius dead, he, he touched my hand and begged that I send him off to the fields to pasture flocks and be as far from sight of the city as he could. Well, that isn't suspicious at all, guys. I wonder why the man could... Possibly want that. After hearing this news about the sole survivor of the attack that killed the former King Laius... Oedipus asks if they can have the man brought to the palace. I mean, sure, we can do that, Jocasta tells her husband, but I have a right to know why you're so upset. So Oedipus tells her his story. Quote, My father was Polybus of Corinth, my mother Merope, a Dorian. He goes on, he, he says that he was held in very high esteem there in Corinth. All was well and normal. Until, one day, a drunk man came up to him, baited him, quote, saying I was not my father's son. I was troubled, but held it in that day. On the next day, I went to my parents and questioned them. He goes on to explain that his parents were upset about this man's accusations, and that that, that reassured Oedipus that it wasn't true. Still, it worried him after the rumors became more well-known in Corinth, so... He visited the Oracle of Delphi without his parents' knowledge, and Apollo, quote, sent me away without what I'd come for, but to my sorrow he gave me terrifying, miserable prophecies that I'd lie with my mother and bring to light a brood intolerable for men to see and be the killer of the father who sired me. No making the connection about what Tiresias said earlier, it seems. I will, though. Oedipus tells his wife, the mother of his four children, Jocasta, that with this news, he felt that all he could do was leave Corinth forever to do whatever he could to avoid that prophecy being fulfilled. And, quote, On my way, I reached the very place where you have said this tyrant met his death. And there's that word again, but this time it's being used about Laius, which is very pointedly not accurate. At this point, seemingly, Oedipus knows almost nothing about Laius as a ruler, though one would imagine that in the 20 or so years he's been with his wife, she must have told him something. Regardless, Laius was not a Tyrannos. He was the true king. He was in line for the throne. He was a Basileus. It's Oedipus who's the Tyrannos, the tyrant, the king who seized power rather than being born into it. At least, as far as we know. 
But Oedipus has more to admit to his wife. He tells her that when he was on that road, he met a group of travelers, one in a wagon. They tried to force him off the road, and he reacted in anger, striking them. When they attacked him further, he, he lashed out and killed them all. Still, he hasn't come to terms with what that could mean entirely. Quote, but if there's some connection between that stranger on the road and Laius, who now would be more wretched than I? What man could be more hated by the gods? He's getting there, but he won't fully admit it yet. He does question if it's true. Like, What would that make him to have killed a man and, and then taken his city, defiled his bed by marrying his widow? Must he be exiled then? He wonders, quote, and in my exile, never see my own, never set foot on native land or else lie with my mother and kill my father, Polybus, who gave me life and brought me up. Still worried about those parents back in Corinth that somehow this revelation about Laius might lead him back to Corinth, he thinks, but might lead him there to his parents where he might ful fulfill the prophecy. <laughs> quote, May I never, never, pure and holy gods, see that day. Let me vanish instead from the sight of men before I see the stain of such disaster come upon me. The chorus tries to reassure him. Just wait, they tell him. Don't jump to any conclusions just yet. Wait until this survivor arrives to tell you what he saw when Laius met his fate. And Oedipus agrees, adding that He's counting on this survivor to confirm Jocasta's story that Laius and his men were killed by bandits. Not just one man. That will free Oedipus from his worries. That will prove him innocent. Don't worry, Jocasta tells her husband. That's what he said back then, and I'm certain that he'll say it again now. He can't take it back. Everyone heard him say it at the time. Besides, she continues, he'll never make the murder of Laius fit with Apollo's prophecy. That's what matters. Regardless of anything, Laius certainly wasn't murdered by the son that he had with me. <laughs> Quote, that poor creature never killed him, but he died himself before. Yeah, Oedipus confirms. You're right. Still, let's send someone to get the survivor, to bring him here to tell his story. Feeling just a little bit better, a little more certain, Oedipus and Tracasta go back inside the palace to await this sole survivor. They leave the chorus on stage to sing about everything that's just happened. They sing in favor of the gods, heavenly Olympus, but they also sing of, of those down on earth, quote, arrogance breeds the tyrant. They sing of hubris in humans, in men. They ask the gods to keep the city safe, quote, never to abolish the strife that benefits the city. The god I will never cease to hold as my protector. They sing of men who don't fear justice, who don't revere the gods. They sing of evil fates for reckless men, men who get their wishes unjustly. They sing of crimes, of avoiding the wrath of the gods, and... For all they sing of the gods and worshipping them, revering them, they also question them, quote, No longer will I go in reverence to the untouchable navel of the earth, or to the temple of Abai, or to Olympia, if these prophecies do not come true for all men to recognize. 
They're questioning Apollo, questioning his prophecies. They're suggesting that if they don't come true, then why do they bother going to Apollo at all? Why do they bother seeking his guidance? They finish their song, quote, Nowhere does Apollo shine in honor. Religion has perished. And then Jocasta returns to the stage. She tells the chorus and the audience that she's considering going to Apollo's shrine, bringing him offerings in the hopes of gaining favor, because Oedipus, he isn't well. He's inside, quote, in the grip of feelings running too high, whipped by pains of every sort. She's trying to reassure him, to give him advice, but he's not able to take anything in. Quote, I've come with these offerings to seek deliverance from our impurity, for now we all shudder to see him in the pilot of our ship, hurled overboard. But before she can say much more, and before the chorus can reply to her, to her concerns about her husband, a messenger arrives from Corinth, seeking Oedipus the tyrant. Oh, God, this play is seriously fun. Like, thank you all for so much for listening. As always, like, I was really excited to to revisit this play now that I'm so much more well-versed in Greek myth and, and tragedy and just, like, everything. But it's totally exceeding my expectations. Like, coming at it as a straight, as just the play, without diving too much into the background of the characters and what they should or should not know by now, is, like, a, it's a far more interesting way of telling the story. There are going to be so many revelations, and while I imagine we all know what the ultimate end result is going to be, seeing how Sophocles told the story, how he's handling the characters and the knowledge that, again, they do and do not have, God, it's far more interesting than anything else. So next week, we're going to finish the play. We'll, we'll get all that knowledge that we're still lacking or that we're just assuming at this point. And then the week after, I'm actually going to look at the myth behind the play and, and beyond it. The things that the ancient Athenian audience would have known ahead of time and and how that might have influenced their viewing of the play. We're going to talk about the Sphinx and the prophecy about Laius, too, where that came from and why. There's so much there. We're basically just going to look at everything else when it comes to these characters and their story, everything outside of the play, because... Gods, it turns out truly there's there's so much more to it that I just realized I can dedicate a whole episode to that, to like the why, the how, the when, the, the sphinx of it all. Because who doesn't want to learn more about the riddling woman monster sphinx? But for now, for all I prefer Euripides, this play is brilliant and fascinating. And I really, I just really think that it's vital that we look at it beyond the kind of like modern understanding of Oedipus, like Look at what makes him and Jocasta so tragic, and maybe even look at like how fucking Freud fucked it all up for everyone. There's a reason this is seen as the absolute best Greek tragedy, and it's not because of fucking Freud's nonsense complexes. No. But that is for future episodes. For now, as always, thank you, and let's end on a five-star review from one of you amazing listeners. I picked this one because, quite selfishly, This person really gets what I'm trying to do here, especially when it comes to like redoing episodes like this or plays like this rather, and emphasizes all the things that I'm really most proud of, like the growth of this show, the things that have changed in these almost like six years since the beginning and and everything in between. So just thank you. Um, This one is from a user called It's K-Hose. It's Kai-Hose. 
something like that in the States. Blew my expectations away. The first few episodes of this podcast are rocky, as they always are. I had been worried Liv was not going to meet my requirements for a Mythos podcast, as I am picky for good reason. But she absolutely has become an incredible source for many inviting both scholars and creatives onto her podcast, and her sourcing has grown into something very admirable. She does mention J.K. Rowling a few times, but denounces it in a conversation episode after that woman's true nature came out. And that was the final moment of relief for me when it came to this podcast. Liv is wonderful and still growing as a researcher, and I use her sourcing for my university classes with ease. Seriously, thank you. Thank you for that one. Like, it really meant a lot. Like, all of them do, and I read them all, and they make me so happy. So thank you all for your reviews. But having somebody see the growth of the show, like, that's what I'm most proud of. And especially, like, you know, I've said it before, but, like, you know, five years ago... I did praise that woman who wrote those books because I am the millennial who grew up with them completely. Um, and like, I mean, before I say anything else, like, fuck her, you know, um, I support trans people in every possible fucking way. Fuck turfs. Um, but like having people recognize that and the people who come to me and ask questions about that to get my confirmation about how I feel. Um, I really appreciate that. It's like, I joke with people, but like I, I, I have really bad anxiety, especially social anxiety. So I can't reply to all the messages that I get. I love them all. I just can't reply to them all. It gives me stress, um, even though you guys are all so nice. But if somebody asks me how I feel about that author or how I feel about trans people, that is a question that I will always answer as soon as I see the email, like truly immediately, because it's so important that people understand that I support trans people and I do not support turfy turfing assholes um so anyway just uh, i appreciate that review especially but also to any of you who feel that way or have seen it in me thank you okay let's talk about mississippi is written and produced by me Liv albert michaela smith is the hermes to my olympians honestly she handles so many things i just love her to death stephanie foley works to transcribe the podcast for youtube captions and accessibility the podcast is hosted and monetized by iHeartMedia. help me continue bringing you the world of greek mythology and the ancient mediterranean by becoming a patron we'll get bonus episodes and more Visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click the link in this episode's description. Gods, I love this job so fucking much. Thank you all for helping me do it. It's fucking fun as hell. I am Liv and I love this shit. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, to live and die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. 
these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right. 